Well, I want to thank uh, all those who've uh, made this morning possible as uh, folks gather in these particular circumstances. We still get the opportunity to reflect on God's Word together. And I suppose this morning the one big challenge is that you can see me, but I can't see you. And I don't know who gets the better deal in that, but we'll leave you to decide at home. This was to have been Communion Sunday, a time when we were to sit around the Lord's table and remember his death for us. And I love nothing more than looking around on Communion Sunday and seeing the brothers and sisters in Christ in both congregations holding that glass in their hand, clutching that bread gratefully, remembering the one whose body was broken for them. It reminds me every time we meet in that way of the fact that the grace of God is at work and has been at work among us in the past and will be even in the future of the power of God to save us and bring us to himself. People from all walks of life, people from many, many different backgrounds sitting together. Sundays where we celebrate communion remind us that we are one. So even though we're apart today, we remain one in Jesus Christ. Today, let me encourage you, if you've got a Bible, to turn to Matthew 26. You've got a little bit more time to Maybe rummage around at home if you don't normally have a Bible with you at church. Matthew 26, and we're going to focus on verses 36 to 46 today in this amazing chapter. And as we've already read it, and as you'll have seen it, it feels as if we are on holy ground. As we have the privilege of hearing the words of Jesus' anguished prayer the night before he is crucified. This scene is recorded for us in three of the four Gospels. It's included in Mark chapter 14 and Luke chapter 22. And so today, in the first of our Easter series, we're going to be considering the cup, the cup. First of all, do you see with me in these verses that Jesus is overwhelmed by the task that lies ahead? Jesus is overwhelmed by the task that lies ahead. Almost immediately in these verses, we are confronted with an incredible sight in verses 36 and 37, as we hear Jesus ask his disciples to accompany him to a familiar place, the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he draws aside his closest friends. And you see in those verses, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then even more remarkable is how Jesus opens his heart to Peter and James and John when he says to them, look at verse 38, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow even to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Whenever we read these words, these words take us aback, don't they? We don't expect Jesus to be sharing these words with these men. He's openly saying that he's struggling Yet we see our Savior, and in these verses, he's completely overwhelmed. He feels desolated. The anguish he's carrying in the core of who he is threatens his very existence on this Thursday night. It's as though all of a sudden, on that night, the reality of all that was to come on that very next day, on that Good Friday, entangles his mind, pulls at his heart, drags at his soul like a huge leaden weight, and threatens to bring him crashing down. Now, some of us might look at this with surprise today. We simply don't expect this of Jesus. Surely of all the people in all of human history, Jesus should be the one who could front up to death. 
Where was Jesus' bravery that he expects us to display when we die? It leads us to ask, was Jesus afraid to die? And if so, in a world where people as diverse as the actress and model Jane Fonda says, I'm not afraid of dying, as the 80-year-old showed off her age-defying beauty in a Daily Express photo shoot, or wheelchair-brown physicist Stephen Hawking in an interview in The Guardian in 2011 told the writer Ian Sample that the fear of death wasn't something he'd ever considered. He said, I've lived with the prospect of an early death for the last 49 years. I'm not afraid to die. So how come if this kind of people, actresses and physicists, atheists, without faith in God, declared their lack of fear in the face of death, why was Jesus so startled? Why was Jesus so overwhelmed? Especially when on several occasions already in Mark and Matthew's gospel, he said three times at least, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. He said he's heading for Jerusalem where he would be handed over to the authorities to be killed. Has Jesus taken cold feet? Why the drama? Why the distress? I mean, this is Jesus we're talking about. Is Jesus not just as heroic as we all would like to think he should be? Should we be shocked at Jesus' sorrow over death? Whilst it might be encouraging to think that Jesus is just like us in his sorrow, we need to remember that Jesus' sorrow is not like ours. Jesus' sorrow is not like ours. Jesus wasn't just about to face death. You see, we've got to understand that death didn't just bring Jesus sorrow. Rather, it was the form of death that brought Jesus sorrow. There was a dawning reality as Jesus gazed into the horrors of the following day. But way, way beyond the nails being driven into his hands. Or the blood loss from the scourging that he would face. Or the crown of thorns that was placed on his head. Or his gasping for breath as he hung there in agony, way, way, way beyond that, he's facing the wrath of God as Jesus became sin for us. Mel Gibson, in some ways, did an incredible job when The Passion of the Christ was produced as a film a number of years ago, and we all began to be moved by the physical sufferings of Jesus. But in Jesus' mind, that is nothing. Nothing compared to what was really coming. The physical pain, oh yes, was real and hurt just as much as it would hurt us. Flesh was torn was one thing, but to be hung on the cross, facing the wrath of God his Father, taking the hell that was deserved for sinners, was it any surprise that Jesus began to wilt and went weak at the knees and crumpled that night? For Jesus Christ, is the only man in all of human history who knows just how terrible the righteous wrath of God and the accompanying punishment for sin really is. For he alone has lived a holy life. He alone is the holy God who walked this earth. And so the weight of the sin of the world pressed down on Jesus with a peculiar force that we will never, praise God, have to face if we're trusting in him. The burden of all our shame and all our sin and all our sufferings crushed Jesus' soul that night. 
Presbyterian pastor and author Tim Keller puts it graphically like this. Something happened in the garden. Jesus saw and felt and sensed something, and it shocked the unshockable Son of God. Physical death and physical torment were just like flea bites by comparison. Jesus was smothered by a mere whiff of what he would go through at the cross. Didn't he know he was going to die? He was beginning at that moment to taste what he will experience in the cross, and it goes far, far beyond physical torture and death. None of us who watch this or hear this can conceive. None of us can imagine the dark mysteries of the sufferings of Christ. And he's entered that dark hole of dereliction on the cross that next day. Is it any wonder he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The closest thing we can say is that he was sorrowful and his heart was aching as he walked towards Good Friday as a condemned soul in the hands of a God who crushes sin. Jesus was overwhelmed by the task that lay ahead. Second thing we notice in these verses is that Jesus needed the company of friends. Jesus needed the company of friends. Now, this might seem like a very mundane point to make following those shocking spiritual distress of the cross that I've outlined, but I believe we have much to learn from this. All of us have got used to the terms social distancing and enforced isolation in our conversations in recent weeks. They are becoming an increased reality and it's not pleasant. Some of you watching this may be watching this alone today. Some of you may be wary to go out. Some of you know that you've got to stay put because of an underlying condition. And some of you are waking up to the reality that this might be for months on end. Some feeling cut off from social interaction or distant from friends or family. And I know that many of you will be missing that mutual encouragement of sitting beside someone and singing praise together today. Well, here we have Jesus, the Son of God, and he feels exactly the same. The Prince of Heaven here among us, down on earth, in human flesh, and he yearns for company when he's getting it tightest. He does not want to be distant. He does not want to be separated from his friends. With all that he's carrying in his mind, with all that's weighing in the horror of his heart, he is not wanting to feel isolated. He takes Peter and James and John into his confidence. And look at verse 38. See what he says to them? He pleads with them, stay here and keep watch with me. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus longs to be encouraged by their company. He longs to, that they're just there. They're nearby, on hand. And as Jesus stared into the uncertainty and pain of the next 24 hours, one thing that was an encouragement to him was to know that his friends were there. I don't want this to sound trite in the circumstances that we face in our world today, but this is so important for all of us. We realize what social animals we are when we those things we love are taken away from us. We were created to be part of a community. In fact, God says in creating Adam and Eve, it's not good for a man to be alone. And in fact, God is community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's how we were designed, in his likeness, to reflect his glory. So to be cut off from community 
hurts us. We will miss seeing people, being with people, especially those that we know and love and have a special bond and affinity with. Maybe these times, in a strange way, are good for us in reminding us that that togetherness and those special bonds of Christian fellowship are not to be taken lightly or taken for granted. I ask and pray that for all of us, the lessons of these times would be worked into our hearts so that moment when we're all free to meet and to handshake and to hug and to worship together, as Hebrews 10.25 reminds us, that we will not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. But for now, let us be mindful that Jesus, our Savior in his humanity, valued friendship treasured those who were nearest and dearest to him. He wanted them to be with him. Friends, let us keep watch for one another in these days. Let us consider those who are feeling isolated, overwhelmed, and burdened. Who is it we perceive to be carrying a lot, weighed down and worried? Who comes to mind that you could drop a message to, write a card to, make a phone call, send a WhatsApp? As you gaze around virtual church, Almost sit, as it were, with your eyes closed today and picture the people who normally sit around you and pray for them. Or why not give them a ring? Or stay in touch? Will it not make the joy of being together all the more sweet when these restrictions are lifted? My heart breaks that over these weeks there'll be many of you I just cannot see. What joy there'll be when we're back together again. To whom and for whom can we watch for and wait on at this time? Jesus needed the company of friends. Here's the third thing in this passage. Jesus pleaded that the cup be removed. Jesus pleaded that the cup be removed. Look at verse 39. With the assurance that his friends were on hand, watching on nearby, we read, Going a little further, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And you notice in the passage, three times Jesus prays a similar prayer. He does it in verse 39, 42, and 44. Three times he approaches his Father in heaven. Three times he asks, If possible, can this cup be taken from me? Now, the Hebrew image of the cup tended to have two meanings. First of all, in Psalm 16 and 23, Psalm that we know very well, we know that the cup was something that was allotted to someone. To use an Old Testament term, it was their portion. Let me illustrate this in two very simple ways. When I was teaching, I know that we have lots of teachers in both our congregations, but I am sure it's the same in any workplace or staff room or factory or whatever. People use their, bring their own mugs. Everyone has their own special cup and special mug that was theirs to use for their tea or coffee, their cup of soup, or whatever they were having to keep them stimulated for the afternoon ahead. But woe betide anyone in the staff room that I taught in if anyone drank from Mrs. Little's mug, because she certainly wasn't going to drink from my York City mug. It was personal, and it was mine to drink from, as she had her very dainty little cup that she brought every day. Woe betide touching her mug. Or if you're waiting for dinner, 
And mum or dad is dishing it out, and they know you like lots of meat and gravy and carrots, but you're not so keen on Brussels sprouts and mashed potato. And so whenever it's set out and set down, that's how you know it's your portion. That's your plate, because the one minus the sprouts and the potato. That's yours, served up for you and to you. And the Old Testament, they would say, that's your lot, that's your portion, that's your cup. That's what you've been allotted. The cup is what you're served up in life. Whatever comes your way, you had to swallow it, whatever it were. In life, you take what was given to you. To put it more cruelly today, we might just say, you've just got to suck it up. That's yours, so suck it up. Sometimes the thing we taste in life, have to swallow, are very, very sweet. There's good times, but there's also those bitter times, and we also say that, don't we, in our terminology, that was hard to swallow. That's precisely the picture that Jesus has in mind here. For Jesus knows the kind of cup that he's got to take. We have already heard of the bitterness of the cup that he must drink, given to him by his Father as part of his great rescue mission here on earth. The Old Testament gives us as many examples of what that cup was to look like. I could give you many, but there's a little thing for you to do this afternoon. Why not choose a Bible concordance and follow through the word cup in it? But let me give you just a few. Psalm 75 verse 8 is a very troubling picture. Let me read it for you. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. That's a psalm of reassurance that God punishes wicked people. It comes in the context of God's people feeling troubled and oppressed by their enemies who would do them harm. So the Lord reminds them of his covenant commitment to them, but preserving their lives and bringing calamity on those who are doing evil to them. Quite literally, those who are God's enemies are forced to drink the burning spices of God's hot judgment. And God will make sure they drink it till it's finished, right down to the dregs, it says, not even a drop left. And God will make sure they drink it and take it all. In other words, again, a phrase we use these days, they get a taste of their own medicine. And then in Isaiah 51, verse 17 and 21 on, let me read those. It says there, awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger. Therefore, hear this, you afflicted one, make drunk, but not with wine. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. It's a remarkable passage, that. Take time to read it again later. Those who face God's judgment will drink from his cup of wrath, which is allotted to them for their evil. We're told that they will stagger. They will be drunk, but not with wine, but with the punishment of God. It's an image of carrying a load that you cannot bear, of drinking a cup to its dregs, a portion that's going to be poison to them, that will kill them. And then in Jeremiah 25, describes it as a ruin, a horror, a curse. Jeremiah 25, verse 29, God says, I am calling down a sword on all who live on earth, declares the Lord Almighty. A sharp, piercing drink 
that will cut to our hearts like a sword. And it's not just the Old Testament that talks about the cup. The very last book of the Bible, Revelation 18, verse 6, tells us Babylon, which is identified in Revelation as everything that's evil in human history. Babylon equals everything that's e evil. It says, give back to her as she has given. Pay back her double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. To put it bluntly by way of summary, sinners get what they deserve. They have to drink what they dished out to others. They have to drink what they have called a poison that will punish them and will make them fall. The judgment of God is terrible. It is blood for blood, foaming vengeance for foaming malice, the scarlet color of divine wrath. But what does it taste like? Oh, the bitterness. Jeremiah talks about the vomit-inducing, staggering, horrible, ruinous poison of God's judgment that is handed to you, not as enemies. But here's the encouragement. It's handed to the Son of God. And in those moments and that garden, God says, Son, you take the cup. You drink it down. You drink it to its dregs for all of my people. You take sin's poison so that they might receive my antidote, which is my eternal salvation. And dear friends in the Comfort and Union Road today, I want you to see this. Maybe like never before. For praise God, if we are trusting in Jesus Christ, even if we see it, we do not and we will not have to taste it for ourselves. We will not drink the poison of the cup. The cup that we deserve, Jesus drinks. This is the cup that Jesus pleads with his Father to set aside and ask, is there no other way? For Jesus knows that if he drinks this cup, it will kill him. The horror of being regarded as an enemy of God as he hangs on that cross as the sin bearer is just too much for the innocent, righteous one, the Son of God, to fathom. And he asks, he cries out, is there no other way, Father? Is there no other way? Let this bitter cup pass. He cries out, Lord, I don't even know if I can handle this. Jesus pleaded that the poison cup be removed. And as we finish, let me leave one last point. That Jesus obeyed the will of of the Father. We don't have as much time in this as I would like, but let me summarize these verses that repeat Jesus' prayer. Again, in verses 39, 42, and 44, he says, Yet not as I will, but as you will. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus' friends and disciples struggled to stay awake and watch with Jesus that night. They let him down. Look at verse 41. Jesus reminds us as humans that the Spirit is willing but the body is weak. Read earlier in Matthew 26, and you hear of Peter and the other disciples full of bravado said, we'll die with you, Jesus. They can't even stay awake with Jesus. Our actions very rarely match our earnest desires. As God's people, we so often know what we should do, but we fail to do it. The spirit is willing, but our bodies are weak. And we groan and moan when our favorite plans or concerns are put on hold. And even in these days, we hear of much complaining about the things that we had planned. But through God's intervention, 
or God's word or God's ways, they cut across our own and we end up, yeah, we show willing, but we're weak. Yet here in the midst of torment of mind, fear of God's wrath, Jesus is willing in his weakness. He's fearful, yet full of faith. He trusts in his Father. His chief concern is to serve his Father in heaven, to complete the mission for which he was sent, no matter the personal agonizing cost. Just Jesus' desire is to be spared. He longs that he's spared. He wants to pass the cup and put it aside. But his mission was not to spare himself. His mission was to spare us. So we do not have to drink the cup of God's wrath. Jesus doesn't deny his emotions. Jesus doesn't avoid suffering. Jesus obeys the Father. And as Jesus goes to the cross, he goes there to save us. Look with me at the end of verse 45. As the sound of Judas and the soldiers approached to take Jesus away and arrest him, to be tried and executed, look what Jesus says at the end of verse 45. Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. You see it? Jesus gave himself into the hands of sinners. Why? So that we as sinners might be received into the hands of God. At these critical moments in our lives, in anxiety or isolation, uncertainty and illness, let me remind you that all kinds of love can let us down. But this one comfort never will. For this Jesus, he took the cup and he drank the cup that we deserved. He emptied it all utterly, completely. Every last drop of the poison of sin that is ours. And he drank it to its dregs. And as he took it, and as he held it, and as he emptied it, not one drop was left for us who take hold of him. And today he hand us that other cup the cup that's called the new covenant in his blood, poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. And if this had been a regular Sunday, I would have said, drink from it, all of you, and remember him. What did we sing before our sermon started? Now the debt is paid, paid in full. The curse of sin has no hold in me, all because of that precious spilled blood of Jesus. What is it we often sing? Our sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It is well. It is well with my soul. All because in torment of his soul, Jesus took that cup, and he drained it. In this time of social isolation, remember the isolation that Jesus took for us as he bore every sin in his body on that tree so that we might know that warmth and comfort 
in connection with him forever. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we do thank and praise you for the cup that our Lord Jesus took. We thank you for all it signifies, that it is the punishment for sin. And we thank you that our Lord Jesus took it and held it and drank it to its bitter dregs and that he did it for us. That he was derelict and isolated and abandoned on that cross so that we might be eternally forgiven. Oh, Father, what hope we have in him that despite the restrictions of these days, that once again we know in our hearts that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from that love, for it is in Christ Jesus. We praise you that our debt is paid, our sin is atoned for, all because Christ drank that cup. So, Father, may that inspire us in these days, and for every other church fellowship who meets in these ways, our friends across the world, as diverse as Burma and India, Poland, we think of Slovenia and the Republic of Ireland and our many contacts in so many parts of this, your world, who today feel alone and ostracized and others who feel isolated and cut off. May they know that because of Christ, we are as close as we can be to our God and that that can never be taken from us. Bless us, we pray, in this incoming week. And may your word inspire our hearts and encourage our souls. In Jesus, our Savior's name, amen.